Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 107 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're learning about weed law. Weed law, man. From Matthew Buck. Today's podcast is sponsored by Ruby Receptionists, and it's smart, charming receptionists who are perfect for small firms. Visit callruby.com slash lawyerist to get a risk-free trial with Ruby. What if we told you that having a new website designed for your law firm doesn't have to suck? Spotlight Branding prides itself on great communication, on meeting deadlines, and on getting results for their clients. Learn more at spotlightbranding.com slash lawyerist. Today's podcast is also sponsored by FreshBooks, which is ridiculously easy to use and packed with powerful features. Try it now at freshbooks.com slash lawyerist and enter lawyerist in the how did you hear about us section. So we spent last week's episode talking about whether lawyers can help innovate and whether lawyers understand technology enough to make things. And in the past week, we helped make a thing. Yeah, we did. It was pretty neat. Uh, You were down at the mid-year meeting for the ABA in Miami? Heck yeah. Yeah. And uh, like on Friday afternoon, I got an email or a message in Slack saying, hey, can you help with this thing really fast? So we helped. Yeah. So I am on the uh, ABA's Law Practice Division Legal Futures Initiative which is kind of a gathering of a bunch of innovators in the profession talking about the future of law and the future of law practice. And at the meeting in Miami last week, we all got there and realized that setting aside kind of the future of law practice, there were some more pressing issues in law that needed some innovators to work on, namely the travel ban, immigration ban, executive order from President Trump. And so our committee spent a couple of hours thinking about how we as a group could help lawyers solve that issue. And we created a website, immigrationjustice.us, as a partnership between the ABA, the Immigration Lawyers Association, and some other groups with the idea of being a one-stop place for lawyers interested in volunteering on those immigration issues to be able to sign up as volunteers, learn more about immigration law in general, more about specifically representing clients on these particular issues related to the executive order. Um, And so we got lawyers involved in helping to build the website and a team of lawyers as volunteers, we're able to knock out a fully functioning piece of legal innovation in an afternoon. Yeah, it's it's pretty neat. And when I was talking with Ed Walters from Fastcase about it, because he was helping out the effort, he explained that when the website was shown, there was applause. And he said, I don't ever want to hear anybody applaud for just slapping together a website ever again, because it's it's easy and that isn't something that people should applaud for. And I totally 100% understand what he's talking about. But the traditional model would have been like, okay, let's go find a budget. Let's figure out what this is all going to cost. And it would have taken six months at the least. And it would have been a huge expensive undertaking. And by the time it got done, who knows if it would have helped anything. Yep. And so in this case, rather than having a months long committee process to decide what we could build and how to do it and who should do it, a group of lawyers without the help of non-lawyers was able to knock out a project in a day. And a couple days later, ABA President Linda Klein highlighted it both for its innovation work, but also because of the importance of the substantive issues at play. Yeah. It w- I mean, it's cool. I, I was thrilled to play a small part in it. Um, but I, 
I think it's just neat to see the ABA, which is sometimes seen as a big clunky organization, be the opposite and be nimble and responsive. And, you know, hopefully they can use that experience and hopefully others can use that experience to say, you know what, next time something big like this happens, if we need a website, let's just get one up and we can make it happen. Or if we need other tools to, if we need to employ other tools, let's just do it and figure out what you need and then make it happen instead of sitting around worrying about committees and budget allocations and things like that. So it was was really inspiring. It was cool leadership on the part of the ABA and we were thrilled to play a small part. And it's also cool because that wasn't the only project of this kind going on at the same time. Um, Greg McClawson, who's been a guest on this podcast a couple of times now, and Joshua Lennon from Clio, who's been on the podcast, um, and some other folks also as a volunteer rapid creation effort, got together about the same time and created airportlawyer.org, which has some slightly different functionality, but is another rapidly developed lawyer-built tool to address some of these same issues. And so not only are there parallel lawyer-led innovations going on, but they're making things easily and quickly that work. And I guess I would say, and that one is also very cool, the next time there's anything resembling this scale of mobilizing lawyers to address an emergency, um, I would love to see those websites pop up within 48 hours rather than a week. Um, and if you're part of one of those, shoot me an email. I don't know that we can help, but I'm, I'm always interested in exploring those things. And, uh, and I, if we can help, I'd love to. I'm neck deep in building websites just about every day. Um, And that's one of the skills that I can sometimes bring to the table. And we have some varied skills on our team. So if you're at a bar association or a specialty bar or an organization and you want to take the lead on it and you aren't sure where to go, uh, reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. And on that point of loving to hear from you, you know, lots of podcasts say every episode several times how much they want you to send in questions or comments. And I guess we just assume that you don't usually need to tell lawyers to say what they're thinking. But if you do have questions or comments and you're holding on to them, please email us. Send them to email at lawyerist.com. We would love to hear from you. We'd love to address your questions on the show uh, or on the website. And we just uh, it's nice to know that you have thoughts about the podcast, even if they are thoughts like we're morons and should have asked different questions. We don't mind. So email us at email at lawyerist.com. And so all those things said, here is my conversation with Matthew about weed law. Weed law. Hi, my name is Matthew Buck. I'm a cannabis attorney from the beautiful Mile High City of Denver, Colorado. A cannabis attorney. I love <laughs> is there is that the accepted professional way to refer to weed? Uh, it depends who you're talking to. If I'm talking to someone at Starbucks, I'll tell them I'm a marijuana attorney. But nice. professionally, uh, I will sometimes, as I'm allowed to do because we have the DBA, I will sign pleadings as the cannabis law firm, which <laughs> would then make me a cannabis lawyer. <laughs> nice. I like that. So, give us a quick background. Like, how did how did weed law? I'm because I'm going to call it weed law because cannabis. You can call it whatever you is, want. Yeah. How did weed law become a thing? Like, as a practice area. That's a good question. So, uh, my boss Rob Corey made his way to Denver, Colorado, and I guess through happenstance, happened to take some sort of marijuana case uh, as it was becoming legalized in 2000 in Colorado. And I'll give a brief history of the scheme in a second. Um, He took a cannabis case and was successful. And that led to more and more people knowing that he was the go-to guy for marijuana. And I would say that given that we were the first state to legalize, he probably is the first marijuana attorney 
I don't know who else could make the claim because all of the other competitor firms are pretty different as far as what they do. And so for his purposes, it was just being in the right place at the right time and knowing the right people. And as far as how I ended up there, he's kind of not a run-of-the-mill attorney. And uh, I'd always wanted to work for him. And I saw there was a job opening at his firm. So I was in a partnership, dissolved my partnership, and applied for the job and got it, among other people that wanted to be there. Wait, you, you, you cut ties and dissolved the partnership before you applied for the job? Yes. That's ballsy. Well, I mean, it's, it was kind of kismet that the job opening was there because he and I are very similar kinds of bombastic, don't really give a care. I'll, I'll censor myself because I've <laughs> just got a sailor mouth over here. So, Oh, we swear all the time. It's oh, fine. we do. Yeah, okay. I did not give a fuck about what was going on <laughs> and I wanted to work for him. And prior to the job opening, I had been working on a motion to reopen. Uh, prior to doing uh, weed law, I did immigration and criminal law. And mm-hmm. I was waiting for, I was an immigration lawyer in a case and the criminal lawyer was sitting in court waiting for my current boss to have a fight with a DE agent on the stand who was refusing service. Um, and usually they'll just duck it through their attorneys, but he was attempting to serve him um, a subpoena for some sort of documents. And it was a big hubbub. And I was like, that's what I want to be doing. I don't want to be doing <laughs> immigration law. This is boring. But to get back to what the scheme is or how marijuana lobbying exists, uh, in 2000, the wise voters of Colorado passed something known as Amendment 20, colloquially, which is an amendment to the Colorado Constitution, Article 18, Section 14, was this specific provision that allowed for, at that time, it allowed for people to uh, open up medical dispensaries that were non-licensed. Mm-hmm. And it also allowed for people to personally use, possess, and cultivate their own marijuana in their homes or in properly regulated structures, which at that point, uh, back in 2000, would have practically been any industrial building. And since then, the legislature has done their best to try and erode all of the personal liberties given to (laughs) us by the wise voters in 2000. Okay, but so this is clearly preempted by federal law, right? Yes, supremacy clause as is, um, yeah, so the, this is all federally illegal. So is your practice representing businesses or representing individuals in criminal cases or both? Or how Man, do- brother, what don't I do? If you like <laughs> weed, I will take your money and do something with it. Gotcha. So uh, here is a wide swath of the cases that I'm current, not, not just cases, but things I'm currently doing. Yeah, I have people who are wanting to get into the marijuana industry and they don't know what to do. So they, they, there's two people that I get with that with that niche. And one of them is I have a lot of money and I know that marijuana is a way to make a lot of money, so they think. Um, so they say, can you help me put together a team of people top to bottom that can help me open up some sort of marijuana business? And can you help me decide what kind of marijuana business I want to run? And I say, yes, I can. So, so that's more like business strategy consulting even, not even law practice. Yeah, it, it's, it's really – yeah, it's not law. Someone that was not a lawyer can and people do do that that are not lawyers in Colorado. Now, mm-hmm. do I think that they abut against the unauthorized practice of law by filling out forms and telling people how to fill out forms? Yes, yeah. because the forms are legal documents and they're not lawyers and they're not trained to read contracts and they're really not trained to write contracts. And so – but they're doing it. Um, so that's one avenue that I do. The second one that I would do is I am really good at marijuana and I'm on a budget. 
can you help me find out what I can do with my meager budget? And I would say that it's like a home grower. Well, this is a current home grower, home grower or drug dealer, maybe (laughs) that, um, or baker get legit, um, could be a baker. I've, I rarely, I would say that our firm rarely deals with people, and I don't know why, that are edible manufacturers that want to get legit. And I think that's maybe because it's a small subsection. Yeah. But I do have a couple clients that were like, I can make XYZ confectionery product. Can you help me get legit? And I was like, yes, I can. But mm-hmm. the other one is, can you, if I, if I am good with weed and I have X amount of money, can you help me start a business or can you put me together with investors? And then that's something else we do. So that's kind of like the business avenue. We do a regulatory avenue. And so there's a large, I don't know what you would want to call it. I guess it's a large subsection of the Department of Revenue that regulates marijuana. And they go by the name of MED, which would be the Marijuana Enforcement Division. Mm-hmm. And there are maybe, I don't know, it's hard to say because there's a lot of turnover because it's not very satisfying, I'm presuming. But there's probably about 50 former cops that work in the regulation industry. So they're all post-certified law enforcement professionals that assist people in becoming legal in investing in their businesses. And so if you run afoul of med regulations, we can defend you if you are brought before the attorney general. Um, Well, technically, the attorney general acts as attorney for the state before an administrative law judge, an ALJ. So we do ALJ representation, and we do before ALG representation, we help you get regulated because the regulations are, man, brother, they could be more than 800 regulations mm. with each with its own subsection. So it'll be M607, for example, regulates marijuana infused products. So that's anything but from uh, hash oil to cupcakes to soda pop. Right. So that's just that's that one rule has probably 10 different subsections written by someone. I don't know who. So it's a bit of, it's like regulatory violations and reg and getting license and licensing. You're yes. doing business formations. Uh, you're helping yes. within, you know, running investment rounds. You're bringing together businesses and strategizing. Yes. So it's, we're advising whether investments are legal because right. uh, the current scheme uh, as of January 1st, 2017 now allows for out of state ownership where it didn't prior to 2000, uh, January 1st, and uh, does not allow for foreign ownership. So there are people from out of state who have met or out of country who have met with them. They're like, I want to get in the marijuana business. I'm like, I'm sorry, buddy, but you can't because there's no way for a non-U.S. citizen in Colorado to be owner of a marijuana business. And the last subsection we do is criminal defense of those who, I guess we do some civil defense, although there's that's its own story. Uh, but we do criminal defense of people charged with marijuana defenses. And I think that's our, I wouldn't say it's our bread and butter, but it's where our name was made in mm-hmm. successful defense of people who have been illegally charged with cultivating marijuana, distributing marijuana, manufacturing. So what does that look like now, though, that that it, it, most of this is legal? Like what, what would a marijuana-related offense be now? Um, here's a classic that I'm, I mean, the classic case is, Someone has a, what we call, they will call it a license. I would call it a red card. And what that is, is under Amendment 20, you can go to a doctor and get a physician's recommendation for a certain amount of plants. And they will give you an amount of plants above six, which we call an elevated plant count, um, for certain illnesses. So let's say that you have spinal cancer and you are in constant pain Prior to April of 2016, 
you could get what we call a 99 plant count recommendation. And that would allow you to cultivate 99 plants in your own home or to have someone else cultivate plants for you as long as they did something besides just give you marijuana. Hmm. That, that, that position is what's known as a caregiver. So let's say that you actually have spinal cancer. You're probably not super mobile and you're not tending to 99 plants, which would take up about – a uh, thousand square feet of a basement. So that's a lot of moving around. It's a lot of work, labor, putting soil in, water, nutrients, etc., trimming. Um, it would be a lot of physical output for a, a, someone with spinal cancer or AIDS or any kind of cancer, leukemia, etc. So you can let someone grow your plants for you, harvest them, and then give you the marijuana and then compensate them for their time. As long as they also help you get dressed in the morning or something. Correct. Or yeah. do anything other. So the, the way the law reads, and it's pretty broad, is that you may not be a mere delivery system for marijuana if you're a caregiver. So as long as you have something, uh, I always tell people if they're going to caregive, do actually care give, make meal plans, exercise plans. Mm -hmm. uh, many of my many of my clients who are also caregivers drive their patients to the doctor because a lot of these people that are using marijuana are either opiate sensitive or have issues with taking medication other than marijuana because there are practically no negative side effects to marijuana. And as far as opiates go, there are a litany of right. serious side effects and people don't want to take you could take oxycodone <laughs> yeah you yeah. can take essentially opium or you can take a, a mild dose of marijuana exactly you could <laughs> eat a chocolate or you can eat something that causes your skin to feel like it's falling off yeah. and it's a pretty obvious choice for some people but um eventually we'll get to 50 state med and get to 50 state legalization but to get back to the criminal case that stems from what's the classic case is someone will get one of those red cards and they will they will get like a 36 plant red card and the police will come because the neighbors complain about odor and they come in and lo and behold, there are 670 plants in the house and there are uh, 45 pounds of finished trim marijuana in vacuum sealed bags next to uh, USPS envelopes, next to a scale, next to a list of addresses that are out of state. Now, that's not a case that I see frequently, but that would be what a criminal case is gotcha. because the – Sexual-related marijuana, uh, which is 1818-406 and the Colorado Revised Statutes, says that anything over six plants is a misdemeanor. Anything over 30 plants is a felony. Now – As long – unless you have that, that exemption. No, not even oh. then. Uh, it says that the elevated plant count red card is an affirmative defense to prosecution. It is not an exception to prosecution. This state, unlike maybe California, we don't – their laws are a little dodgy, uh, but this state does not have exceptions. So you could be charged even if you are legally growing and you've got – there's no proof at all of distribution. You can get charged with felony cultivation, which is pretty serious. It uh, has a hmm. – I think – so felony cultivation would be a drug felony for – so you could serve a year in prison, which is if you have cancer, it's probably going to be a death sentence for you. Um, but the average – that's what our average criminal case is, gotcha. is – Someone has a red card or multiple red cards and they have more plants than that. Or alternatively, uh, they get caught shipping marijuana out of state and that's a pretty cut and dried. Your red card limit ends at, this, at, the, state, right. at the state border. It doesn't cover you in Kansas or Texas or Florida. So now that we've got kind of background, let me take just a few minutes to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, I want to talk about how you navigate the ethics, the professional ethics of representing people who are doing 
clearly illegal things at one level, but legal things at another level. So we'll be right back. This podcast is supported by Ruby Receptionists. As a matter of fact, Ruby answers our phones at Lawyerist, and my firm was a paying Ruby customer before that. Here's what I love about Ruby. When I'm in the middle of something, I hate to be interrupted. So when the phone rings, it annoys me, and that often carries over into the conversation I have after I pick up the phone, which is why I'm better off not answering my own phone. Instead, Ruby answers the phone, and if the person on the other end asks for me, a friendly, cheerful receptionist from Ruby calls me and asks if I want them to put the call through. It's a buffer that gives me a minute to let go of my annoyance and be a better human being during the call. If you want to be a better human being on the phone, give Ruby a try. Go to callruby.com slash lawyerist to sign up, and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. If you aren't happy with Ruby for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks. I'm pretty sure you'll stick around, but since there is no risk, you might as well try. Most solo and small firm lawyers have had at least one truly miserable experience with a web designer or internet marketing company. So if the idea of launching a new website for your law firm makes you queasy, our friends at Spotlight Branding get it. At Spotlight Branding, they pride themselves in excellent communication with their clients. They are responsive, professional, respectful, and deliver what they tell you they are going to deliver. Spotlight Branding works exclusively with solo and small law firms. Services include law firm website design, email newsletter management, social media marketing, and more all designed to make your law practice more profitable. Visit spotlightbranding.com slash lawyerist to see how they can help your firm stand out from the crowd without the headaches. So you're racing against the clock to wrap up three client projects, prepping for a meeting later in the afternoon, all while trying to tackle a mountain of paperwork. Welcome to modern life as a small firm lawyer. The working world has changed. With the growth of the internet, there's never been more opportunities for the self-employed. To meet this need, FreshBooks is excited to announce the launch of an all-new version of their cloud accounting software. It's been redesigned from the ground up and custom-built for exactly the way you work. Get ready for the simplest way to be more productive, organized, and most importantly, get paid quickly. The all-new FreshBooks is not only ridiculously easy to use, it's also packed full of powerful features. Create and send professional-looking invoices in less than 30 seconds, set up online payments with just a couple of clicks, and get paid up to four days faster. See when your client has seen your invoice and put an end to the guessing games. FreshBook is offering a 30-day unrestricted free trial to our listeners. To claim it, just go to freshbooks.com lawyerist and enter lawyerist in the how did you hear about us section. Okay, we're back. And Matt, tell me, so it is all legal in various ways in Colorado, although there, as you just told us, there's some interesting interplay of being illegal, affirmative defenses, whatever. But like, how, how do you ethically advise people who are to do an illegal thing? I mean, it feels like, um, yes, you could murder this person, but it's, uh, if you do it in this way, it's legal in this way, maybe it's not. We can't really advise people how to break the law. So how do you, how do you navigate that? Well, it's twofold. First off, uh, as I tell every U.S. attorney when I'm dealing with them in a federal case where I have no defenses, that if slavery was legal, I would still advise people how to help escape slaves remain free because I think it's a moral imperative that we do things that are moral. And I think that prohibiting people from using medication, which we know works, which we would have more peer-reviewed journal studies showing that it worked if the federal government didn't make doing the studies so difficult. Uh, so letting keep people from the medicine is, to me, immoral, and I will always help them, even if I didn't have the second part of this, which is that the state of Colorado, in a decision in, I think, 2012 or 11, said that we are allowed to advise them 
up to the limits of what is legal and illegal in Colorado, that we cannot advise them how to break state or federal law, but we can advise them what the laws are in Colorado because otherwise they'd be flying blind. And our job as lawyers is to help people navigate what is a very complex legal system. Specifically, this legal system is very complex because the regulatory body is so ever-changing that I would say that maybe every month we get a new rule, rules change. Uh, for example, in 2015, they released something that said that you could no longer keep marijuana overnight if you were delivering it and that to do so would be a violation of regulations, which, which effectively – which was a two-parter because they also said you can't hire someone to be a marijuana delivery person. So it effectively meant that – people had to deliver their own marijuana and they had to get every delivery done in one day because to leave it in their car overnight could put their license at jeopardy. And some of these licenses are worth a couple million dollars a month. And that's a pretty significant chunk of money. Um, Certainly it's up there with having, it's more than a liquor license and it's probably up there with having, you know, a brewery. I don't think barring some of these large microbreweries, the small local microbreweries aren't making $2 million a month. They're not ma- they're not having a $10,000 afternoon, you know, or a $20,000 morning. Now that you just mentioned, I'm curious, like, are there people who would otherwise start a microbrewery, which is huge in Colorado, obviously, that are like, yeah, you know what, maybe, maybe weed is the way to go. Maybe I'll start a small weed operation instead of, um, instead of brewing beer. I have never had someone that came to me and said I was going to start this, but not that. But I have multiple clients who own breweries who also own marijuana businesses. Oh, that's and interesting. I, Crossover. Well, I think if you've navigated a regulated industry and you have business sense of how to run a business, which a lot of people don't have. They can grow marijuana, but they don't know about inventory and employees and staying regulated. Uh, so if you're already doing it with alcohol, then it's – it's not that unnatural to me because I feel that like it or not, because some Coloradans don't like marijuana, but like it or not, marijuana and beer are both part of the culture. Wait a second. Is anybody is anybody selling like marijuana infused beer, like can of beer? It's not legal. Um, so <laughs> oh, I was gonna. I thought I might have just invented like a brilliant thing. <laughs> oh, we already had that idea. And also, you cannot combine caffeine and marijuana. That, Interesting. Uh, it's very regulated what you can put in there, and the regulation of not mixing alcohol and marijuana comes from the marijuana side, not from the alcohol side. Huh. Um, there is a product which is hemp uh, vodka, which we have a bottle of in our law firm frid- freezer. Um, <laughs> But there's, that's the only liquid that I've seen. I had a client that wanted to make – I won't disclose what the product was. But he wanted to make a product that combined two other products and it was not allowed. And it's they're pretty uh, – so you can't have nicotine and marijuana gum, for example. That's not the product but that's one yeah. thing that I had the idea of because I think if, if you're involved in the industry – you're gonna have an idea yourself, and that was that was my that was my idea. I thought that would be a gotcha. slam dunk, but uh, the regulations of working with nicotine are are, are too much, and they don't let you mix. They just only mix drugs, which I think is a smart idea. Um, yeah, THC is a pretty potent chemical unto itself, and we don't need to add other things to it. It's enjoyable by itself. So let me ask you about some of the practical realities of representing clients in this area. Um, you know, I it's my understanding that banking becomes very difficult um, because most banks are federally regulated and um, where that's where you can't, you know, uh, launder money that was gained illegally. Um, and maybe I'm, 
I'm, I'm probably just uh, glossing over all of the important details, but I mean, do your clients just drop off bags of cash or has have they figured out a way to manage all of this? That is a very good question. Um, so I think that the issues with banking are not as widespread as they were probably five years ago. Um, right now, if someone came to me and said, I need to put my, I need to put money in the bank, I could give them a list of five different, different kinds of five different banks, Mm -hmm. not just branch, not just branches, but actual like banks with multiple locations that would take their marijuana cash. And that has prevented what we used to have, which was people sitting with a million dollars of cash in their house, which we don't want as a society. I think that we don't want to attract, um, People are going to know that if you own a marijuana company, you've got cash in your home. Um, so banking is fine, but the other we, we're lagging behind in ways to take credit cards. The ways that they take credit cards now is an end around. So for example, Square, the yeah. uh, credit card processing service, they will not they will not give a Square account to a marijuana company. But there is credit card services. Specifically because we want to avoid money laundering. And if you have a million dollars in cash, and I can tell you from not my personal experience, but from client's experience, you can't do a lot with a million dollars in cash. You can't buy a home in cash because the title companies locally, and I'm guessing nationwide, will not take unseasoned funds for a home. So if you can't show the provenance of where your $500,000 came from to buy a home, they won't accept it. Uh, they want you to put it in a bank, for, but the, for some good reasons, apart I from, so. yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it does say for or all debts. I mean, that's a debt technically. I mean, yeah, there are, but, but there is nobody walking around with a million dollars in cash who has gotten it legally. Well, not federally legally, but prior that's what to I mean. Right. 2015, <laughs> there were plenty of people in Colorado that had a million dollars cash that didn't know what to do with it. And yeah. that's why you saw some of the dumb early adopters flaunting their wealth with sports cars, machine guns, etc. Because you're just trying to dump it into something to hold it other than cash. Because you can't put it into gold because they're they're required reporters, also pawn shops. They take more than $10,000. They have to fill out the form. I think it's 1083 that says, um, I took more than $10,000 cash. And you don't want that kind of name out there because you still are violating federal law. And prior to the coal memo, um, which stated that the feds were not going to interfere with people that were operating legally, uh, there was a realistic chance that the federal government was going to come in and start arresting people that were violating federal law. And thankfully, uh, that has happened to one person that I'm aware of uh, that was not violating a, another federal law other than the Controlled Substances Act. Has Bitcoin become part of the solution at this point? There are dispensaries that have Bitcoin ATMs at their locations. But I think that there's a barrier to entry of knowledge for Bitcoins and it's difficult. And even I, with a giant doctor of law, still can't <laughs> figure out Bitcoins. Uh, I mean, I can't, there's, there's no good way to transfer them. And I think maybe because they're trying to keep it a secure currency, they don't want it to be easy. But um, other than going to a physical Bitcoin ATM and uh, converting cash to a Bitcoin there, the yeah. thing is a barrier to entry where the average person is not going to want to have them around because they really only have, well, there probably are some legit purposes I don't know of, but other than the only purpose I know of is to buy drugs in the dark market. I mean, there is, but, but similar to giant bags of cash, most people with giant wallets of Bitcoin 
have gotten it by selling drugs. Or maybe they're early adopters and had a mining machine and yeah, they... Yeah, that would be the one exception, but yeah. now they're probably using it to buy drugs, so... <laughs> Probably this thing. What can you do? You can't really do a lot with the Bitcoin. That's yeah. that's why I think they haven't. Well, you can take out hits like, on people. You can buy you can drugs, and you can buy illegal pornography. So you could probably buy illegal firearms. Yeah, uh, there you go. <laughs> that's the other problem with the darker net is that you have to be smart to get to it. I don't even know what it looks like, but I'm imagining it looks like eBay, and you can pick. I don't know. Who knows yeah, what it looks it's like. it's but, pretty it's pretty undark to look at actually. Oh really? Um, okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> lots of this stuff is essentially at the whim of the federal government. And which makes me wonder if uh, it would be wise to use some protections around communications and data storage. So I'm wondering if you do and and uh, take extra steps to protect your clients' communications and information. And if so, what do you use? We we don't do anything with it. I mean, we use uh, Gmail as our backend, so we use Google Apps for our business email. But we don't. I can't remember the last time I discussed anything over email with a client. I would say that 99.9% of my communications are face-to-face because I don't have clients out of the state of Colorado. And so we don't discuss anything. I mean, if I look at my email now, um, most of my emails to clients are, can I come see you at blank date? And I say, yes, I have time on blank date and they come in. Uh, So we never discuss, I mean, other than criminal discovery, I would say the word marijuana does not appear in my email. So, um, it's not even a matter of, it's not such a deliberate thing or or it is, and you're just having those conversations face-to-face as a way of keeping them out of your information stream. It's it's not it's not deliberate. I just think I'm pretty verbose, as this may <laughs> or may not show. And so I don't, they just, they know they're going to get a better answer. And oftentimes if we're dealing with, I don't have, my clients don't come with quick hit questions. Yeah. They come with, with difficult questions that they don't want to have a 30 page email response to, they want to sit down for an hour. And then oftentimes if I need to give them written instructions, I'll physically print it and give it to them on the way out. But that's not intentional because of security. It's just because they don't ask for it. No one, we don't discuss anything. I mean, I guess the, the one exception to that would be when I'm working with clients to get their business up and running, um, multiple municipalities require like an operational guide of how you're physically going to work with the marijuana. And so in that instance, we'll provide that in writing and I will work on drafts of that with the clients. But that comes from municipalities. And barring the lawsuit that's currently going on in the 10th, uh, municipalities have here too far been immune from any sort of liability related to their participation in the marijuana industry. I mean, do you do you worry about the federal government just doing a 180 and saying, you know, we're, we're done. We're going to, we're, we're done tolerating this. We're just going to crack down. I didn't until we elected a chimpanzee as president (laughs) and he nominated Jeffrey Sessions as his attorney general nomination. I had no worries until, um, November 8th, 2016, I guess that was was a word for the country. Whenever they, whenever they announced Sessions, I became worried because of his previous positions on marijuana are effectively that he, he's on record as saying something, very literally close to no good people use marijuana or no good people smoke marijuana. And when he was uh, in 2013 interviewing the new DEA head was confirming that position basically that marijuana was not good. It had no medical benefits. I mean, and even uh, President Obama's last Surgeon General was on the record of stating that there was no medicinal benefits to marijuana, which is a – a ridiculous claim and B, it was obviously politically motivated. So yeah. do I worry about it? Yes, I do worry because... What, what would that even look like? I mean, 
is that is it more like hey Colorado starting on you know July 1st we're going to start arresting people and we're going to show up we're going to bring the DEA in and we're going to start shutting down operations or is it more just like one day everybody starts showing up and they start arresting people I would guess they'd give a warning in yeah. 2013 the state of Colorado sent out mass notices to dispensaries that were within 1,000 feet of a school that you need to shut down or we're coming. And literally every single person complied. So I'm guessing given that these aren't, you know, whatever your worst stereotype of what a stoner is, which to (laughs) me is like a beard and dreadlocks and smelly and like a Rasta hat uh, and like a Bob Marley t-shirt, that is not people in the industry today. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. There are very few small shops left. Um, There are a lot of people who are conglomerates. They own 10 licenses, 20 licenses. They own the property that their buildings are in. And commercial property here is incredibly valuable. So they might own $100 million in buildings, let alone what their business is worth. So those people, if told, hey, it's time to shut it down, they would just shut it down and they're entrepreneurs. They would find whatever the new way to make money was. I don't think – I mean I know for a fact there are not the law enforcement resources to shut it down. And I know that because um, one of my clients was engaged in lawful business in the state of Colorado and – they believed that he was also engaging in unlawful business in outside the state of Colorado, and they sent every FBI agent they had to raid his personal property and his businesses. And there are so few federal law enforcement officers in the state of Colorado that they had IRS agents in tanks on his property, which I find <laughs> laughable, but it's also true. A and B, when you got to get the IRS cops involved, you might be a little light on the staffing. So yeah. this just there's not. The practical reality is they can't do much in the, no, in the short term. Anyway. No, there's there's probably, I mean, just there's over 500 dispensaries in Denver alone. So the state yeah. of Colorado, they're probably around 750. And then there are ancillary buildings and, that are associated with those that are also licensed. So they'd need to bring in, just if you look at where we are, we're in the middle of nowhere. I mean, yeah. Wyoming might have four feds if it has that. Idaho, there's just no states around that have a lot of law enforcement. So you'd have to see such a large scale movement that would be so expensive that I'd have to think taxpayers would be upset that their tax dollars were being used on that. So I think they'd send letters out and they'd shut it down. But I think before when they sent letters out, you would see a lot of us that practice this form of law. And there are you know, at least, I mean, people that actually do this and don't, don't just say they do this. There are probably at least 10 of us in the state of Colorado would all file lawsuits on behalf of our clients and it would just clog up yeah. um, the district of Colorado with temporary injunctions based on the letter. And I think we'd find out in court before they wasted valuable taxpayer dollars and had tanks at everyone's home. So by way of sort of wrapping up, let's say uh, you're in a state like I am where uh, medical marijuana recently became legal. Uh, and it's sort of, it's not, it's not like legal and everybody's doing it cause they made it pretty onerous, but like, how, how do you, how do you start building a weed law practice from that point? I, I, cause I assume that's basically the starting point is once you can actually have a valid business, that's where you can start maybe building that brand as the local weed lawyer. So like, how would you go about doing it? That is a great question. Uh, so f- let's take Washington DC, for example, they have legal medical marijuana and they have no marijuana attorneys because the re- the restrictions are so onerous that you don't need a lawyer for it because it's everything is so 
black and white. So let's say that you were in a state like Florida, for example, that just expanded their medical marijuana program. Uh, I think the, the what you would do is get out in front. Well, the problem is if you want to, most people that say that they do marijuana law, like for example, if you look at, I won't name names because I'm get in trouble for that. But there are people who are out in front media wise and on the web as marijuana attorneys. They are just good looking lawyers who say they do it and they don't really do. If you look at uh, what they're actually doing, they're not really doing a lot in the courts. So I don't really know. I'd be my, so if you're that kind of cannabis lawyer, I would say be really attractive and give interviews. <laughs> that's, that's what you should do. But if you actually want to be boosting the ground is get to know your local I hate to recommend normal because I just think they're so inactive, but I think that a lot of the local normal attorneys, which is the National Organization for the Regulation of Marijuana Legally, I think is what normal stands for. I'm not a member. Um, those guys are doing important work. So I think get involved with normal because they're, they have good results and people that get in trouble are going to Google marijuana lawyer and they're going to find normal. And so then they're going to find you. And then we don't do a lot of marketing. We, you know, we're first page Google search because we've been around for so long and because we do so much and we do so much because we've been, a, it's a horrible legal chicken and egg if you want to do a certain kind of law. So for example, I wanted to do uh, escort law about three years ago and I tried to drum up business and talk to people in the industry and say, listen, if you are getting in trouble, I will help you because I think that this should be a legally protected activity you're engaging in. And they were just so averse to talking to lawyers because they're always worried that it's like, that's a cop, I yep. think, yep. because they have a, we have, thankfully in Colorado, we have a sex work union. So sex workers um, have a union that they can, I don't know what to do. They don't have a website, obviously, but I've talked to the head of it. And I said, listen, we'll represent you. I'd love to be your local counsel. And they were just so, it was just so difficult. Yeah. And so the problem was there because I wasn't doing anything and people knew who I was and I didn't have results where I could show them, listen, um, this is how I can help you. And by the way, I'm undefeated in escorting cases. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. But, but I, those clients don't want me to be trumpeting. Hey, listen, I was charged yeah. with, uh, but you, you have to build a reputation. You have to uh, establish yourself yes. as doing it. And maybe you have to ride along on another lawyer's uh, reputation for a little while before you can build that and build some trust. And that's what I did. I mean, I, I, I didn't necessarily – I'm not some huge – warrior for marijuana, but I wanted to work for my boss. He happened to do this. And because of that, I have people that request me specifically because we were just so simpatico that I started filing the same kind of suits he had been filing and it works out. But as far as if you want to start from scratch, I would say meet local people, tell them if they have a problem, you'll help them for free. Then Get someone acquitted, and that's the, the that's the biggest way that you can earn a reputation is either a not guilty or even better than that winning, which we've done as <laughs> uh, have cases dismissed because of yeah. poor police work or whatever. But the problem is the case, the court decisions that keep coming out every year are eroding at what I think are simple liberties. So, for example, prior to last year, um, it was pretty cut and dry that or at least it was ambiguous on whether odor could be probable cause of someone um, committing an illegal activity because marijuana is inherently legal that six plants, you don't need a license, just any general citizen in Colorado, any, in fact, you don't even citizen. The second you step foot in Colorado, you have the right to grow six plants in your residence. Could you grow six plants in your Ramada and you're staying after the airport? Probably not. But if you just move here day one, you can start growing immediately. You can go to the local store and buy clothes. So, 
because we know that that is legal activity. It's not just decriminalized. It's legal. Uh, anyone could do it. There's no license, no exceptions, etc. cetera. Uh, I thought it was pretty cut and dry that if you, if you can just smell marijuana, it's not evidence of illegal activity. But then a case came out last year that said that based on the culmination of factors, odor can be one of the things that is evidence or probable cause of a crime being committed. And I just find it to be ridiculous. And so when you get things like that, it makes it harder to fight people engaging in legal activity. And we still are seeing, even in 2017, um, seven years after you know the legalization or at least decriminalization of medical use, overzealous policing as it relates to marijuana for people that are doing nothing more than exercising constitutional rights. So, uh, so get out there, network, meet people, and take cases and win some. I mean, that's I mean, that's a good advice for every lawyer: is win cases you take. Yeah, well, that's true for free. <laughs> Matt, thanks so much for being on the podcast today, and uh, good luck with weed law. Thank you so much. Make sure to catch next week's episode of the Lawyerist podcast. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit lawyerist.com slash podcast or legaltalknetwork.com. You can subscribe via iTunes or anywhere podcasts are found. Both Lawyerist and the Legal Talk Network can be found on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, and you can download the free app from Legal Talk Network in Google Play or iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said during this podcast is legal advice.